Dr. Charles Coven is an Earth System scientist working in the Climate Sciences Department at the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. He investigates feedbacks between climate and the carbon cycle. Dr. Coven's primary research focus is on high-latitude feedbacks to climate change, and in particular, the role of soil carbon in permafrost soils and its response to the changing climate. Dr. Coven is a lead author on the IPCC report as part of Working Group 1, the physical science basis of climate change. Dr. Charlie Coven, welcome to the One Planet podcast. Thank you so much, Mia. You're one of the lead authors on the IPCC report. I'd like to understand a little bit more about the methane in the atmosphere. It's now higher than at any time in the last 800,000 years. Do you think that if we reduce it, we could really stay below 1.5 degrees? Yes. Yeah, so there are a number of different sources. There's agriculture, wetland emissions, and fossil fuel emissions playing a role. And Methane is the sources of methane to the atmosphere. The recent very steep increases appear to be driven by a mixture of these sources. And yes, the key thing about methane is that it's an extremely strong greenhouse gas, um, but it doesn't stay in the atmosphere for very long. Um, and so it, it really represents the best opportunity that we have for near-term mitigation of climate change. If we're able to reduce methane emissions, whether through fossil fuel emissions or through agricultural emissions uh, of methane in the very near term, that will have an immediate payoff in terms of climate benefits because the, the methane is such a strong forcer, but also such a, a short-lived forcer. And so it's very different from, from CO2 in that respect because methane is is our best opportunity to um, reduce warming in the near term. One of the things we expect to happen as a result of basically reducing emissions everywhere is that there's several different types of forcers we have in the atmosphere. There's short-lived climate pollutants like methane that warm. There's also short-lived pollutants like smog-type gas, aerosols, that actually cool the planet. And those two things, you know, roughly cancel each other out. One of the issues we face is the extent to which we are able to clean up other emissions like aerosols, those will actually have a warming effect. And so it's, it really underscores the importance of also reducing methane in the near term. So those two short-term, fast-acting climate forcers, we don't remove just the one and not the other. And it's just amazing to think about some of these coal mines that are just leaking. One in Russia, the Raspiskaya, it's 90 tons every hour in the last several months. Yeah, there's methane being released from a lot of the fossil fuel infrastructure, the coal infrastructure, the gas infrastructure, the petroleum infrastructure, all of them are leaking very large amounts of methane. Having said that, thinking about the numbers that we have to reach by 2025 peak emissions and then go down from there, what, 43%? Is this achievable? That's not really for scientists like me to say. In terms of achievable, we have the technologies to reduce our CO2 emissions, to reduce our methane emissions. What achievable is uh, more a question of political will. I wish I could answer that question. Sorry to ask, but it seems we are on this route for you know surpassing 1.5%. So what's best case scenario? What you feel is within our reach now? In the part of the IPCC report that I worked on, where we kind of stopped was this is the remaining carbon budget uh, for keeping global warming below one and a half degrees C uh, or well below two degrees C, you know, a couple of different thresholds. And then there's the question of what can we actually do? Those remaining carbon budgets are very, very stringent. Right? So the, the remaining carbon budget um, to get below one and a half C 
basically is, uh, you know, is basically 10 years of our current CO2 emissions. And so in order to stay below that, that means we need to get to net zero emissions before we exceed that budget. And so, you know, if you sort of draw a triangle of where we are now and getting to zero, that basically gives us 20 years to get to zero. Uh, and that was published last year, right? We've already now had one more year of effectively constant emissions, right? So that's from 20 years now, we've used up another another tenth of our budget, you know, since, since it's been published, right? And so the pathway to keeping global warming below 1.5 is small and getting smaller. As I understand, it's feasible for cities to have net zero by 2050. Absolutely. I mean, there are there are there's a lot of action happening, right? And I think that's one of the interesting things right now is that you know on one level, you know, we're really starting to see the impacts of climate change. We're starting to feel the or continue, you know, we're continuing to very clearly feel the impacts of climate change. We've been feeling them for a long time, but you know, there have been questions about how much we can attribute to climate change. Now we can very clearly attribute the extreme events that we're seeing to climate change. We can attribute a lot of the impacts to climate change, and so it becomes increasingly salient to everybody in the world in ways uh, like a middle, a little bit more of a distant threat to a lot of the world in the past. And one level, it's very powerful and and kind of depressing, right? That we that we know that these these impacts are happening and they're going to keep getting worse and they're not going to get better unless and until we're able to get to net negative emissions, which is we're a very 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 long way off from. But on the other hand, we are starting to see a lot more action. Um, cities are acting, local governments are acting, nations are acting. You know, at all levels, the technologies for renewable energy, for energy storage are increasing really rapidly. And so at the same time, we're starting to see what the pathway might actually look like to really strongly mitigate climate change. And so I feel like this moment is kind of a you know best of times, worst of times moment. It just depends on which perspective you want to take and how you want to look at it. And I know it's beyond the purview of what you do at your lab at Berkeley, but could you just walk us through, as a lead author on the IPCC, the different chapters, the different areas from agriculture, as we were discussing cities and buildings, just to help us really understand where we are, the various chapters. Sure. Okay. So, so the IPCC report um, is structured in, into into three big sections. Right. There's the first section is on the the science of climate change, the physical science, the 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 carbon cycle. Basically, what are what are the causes of climate change? What can we expect in the future if we follow different pathways of emissions? Um, in terms of the effects on on the climate system, on precipitation, on global warming, on loss of ice in the in the cryosphere, uh, on the oceans, ocean acidification, all you know, all these aspects of of kind of the physical science. And that, so so that's the part that I I worked on. And really, the handoff from that part to well, there are a couple of different sort of points of handoff from that part of the of the report to some of the other parts. One is the remaining carbon budget, where we basically try to quantify how much warming we can expect for a given amount of emissions. The other handoff are uh, are to understand you know what is the climate change and some of the um, the 
direct drivers of climate impacts for different amounts of warming. So at one and a half degrees of warming, what will those climate changes look like? At two degrees of warming, what will those look like? You know, at higher amounts and in longer time scales. And so those are some of the points of handoff. The next big part of the IPCC report, was called the, the Working Group 2, is about impacts. You know, how does climate change affect people in different parts of the world? How does it affect ecosystems? How does it affect the built environment? What are the impacts that we expect and the vulnerabilities um, for different amounts of warming? Uh, and then the third part is about mitigation. W what are the pathways look like? How do we change our practices in order to keep global warming at, as low and as mitigated as possible? Uh, and, that, and so that includes like you say, uh, you know, uh, emissions from buildings, emissions from agriculture, emissions from, you know, energy, emissions from transportation, uh, et cetera. But of those three parts, I really focused much more on, or the part I worked on was the first of those, is basically um, how much warming do we expect for a given amount of emissions? What, what does that uh, mean in terms of what is the remaining carbon budget for keeping global warming below certain targets? So you put out this research in which all signs point to us having to take action. Having said this, what is the role of scientists in the political and the public sphere? And do you think that's changing with the increased urgency we have around the climate crisis? Scientists have a lot of roles to play, right? First and foremost, I think, is to do the science and to, and to understand the process. So in my case, the science that I focus on is on the interactions between the global carbon cycle and the climate system. So, you know, how will changes to climate lead to changes in, um, you know, carbon cycling from between uh, ecosystems and the atmosphere? And what will that look like in the future under different uh, pathways of emissions? And so it's really important to do that science and so that we can have some basis for being able to anticipate what we expect to happen. So I think that's, you know, that's sort of role number one. Uh, role number two is to then listen and listen to what are the questions that people want scientists to ask? What are the questions that people have? What are the crucial uncertainties that policymakers have, that, that general people um, you know, in, in the public have, that they're looking for to scientists for answers from? I think it's really important for us to listen so that we can understand what are the key questions that need to be answered. And I think the third is communication. Um, and being able to answer the questions that people have and, and also being able to say, what do we know and what don't we know? And so I think all three of those parts are, are really important. I think to the extent that scientists um, have uh, an advocacy role, you know, I think it's, it's important to be able to identify, you know, what, is, what does the science say? And then what it does, you know, as a human, as a citizen, what, what do I think is important? And to be able to hold both of those points and separate them, but say also how they relate to each other. Speaking about advocacy, you spoke a little bit before about the role of innovation, and you've said before that we do have a lot of those methods of innovation, but they just need to be implemented. What do you think is the role of scientists in advocating for that and why these haven't been integrated into society yet? I think the the first you know sort of role of scientists is to communicate the urgency of the problem. But I think that talking about a remaining carbon budget for climate civilization is a very powerful way of doing that because it makes one realize how fast we need to act, right? In order to, you know, because we only have 10 years worth of our current fossil fuel emissions, or really, you know, nine now since it's been another year since we published that, right? To keep 
going below this threshold that we said, you know, within the Paris Agreement that we were going to try and keep the global climate system below that, that really communicates the urgency of it. Also, you know, understanding, okay, so if we exceed that, then then what do we expect to happen? I do think that some of the danger of the remaining carbon budget is is this idea, well, you know, what happens if we if we exceed that? Do we fall off some sort of cliff? To, you know, and it's important to also communicate that no, we, the world doesn't end if if we if we exceed one and a half degrees Celsius. Every bit of warming uh, that we cause is going to make everything a lot, you know, a, 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 an amount more difficult. We don't know if where there are, if there are any thresholds. We don't ex- really expect there to be any thresholds or tipping points. What we expect is that every amount of emissions is going to lead to more warming and every amount of warming is going to lead to more difficulties. And so I think the, the key role of scientists like myself who focus on the climate system is to make that clear, make this the scale of the problem clear, the urgency of the problem clear, the stakes clear. There's lots of other scientists who are working on specific methods um, for how do we make batteries more efficient? How do we make you know electric cars more efficient? How do we make photovoltaics more efficient? And then, and then there are the question of how do we deploy all these things? And this is where it gets outside of the science a bit and more into the sort of political economy of it. How do we actually get deployment of clean technologies everywhere around the world with the urgency that's needed at the scale that's needed? is an incredibly daunting challenge. It's not one that I have a lot of expertise in. It is also, you know, obviously incredibly important because as you say, you know, we do have a lot of the technologies um, and we haven't deployed them as as fast as we would hope, but that seems to be changing, right? Solar is the fastest growing energy source in the world right now. You know, we're starting to see movement in terms of the replacement of our, at least our light duty passenger vehicle transport system from away from gasoline powered cars and towards electric cars, which, you know, doesn't solve all the problems by any means, but is certainly a step in the right direction. So we're starting to see important movements happening. Yes, it's I, I admire those who move this forward. We're speaking soon to uh, Bertrand Picard, who I am sure you know, he has a, a 1,400 approved and profitable solutions out there, and he's really driving for it. So I feel like if he can do a solar-powered flight around the world, then he can energize the political system. So we're fingers crossed on that. Right. And you spoke about imagining futures beyond our immediate future. I can't even think to 2100, but there you outline some possible futures beyond that. So what what are we looking at? Yeah, some of the recent work that I've been doing is has been to really start thinking about what yeah what happens after 2100. I think you know, the IPCC process has kind of held this 2100 uh, endpoint of of what it considers the near future, and it has held that point kind of fixed now for 30 years, right? Since the first IPCC report in the early 90s, that was kind of when things ended. And, you know, in the early 90s, 1990s, you know, that was 120 years out. Um, now it's you know 2022, and, and a lot of stuff is still kind of ending in 2100, and it's not that far out, right? I hope my kids are still alive in 2100, and so I think the the key thing is as we look out past 2100. I think there, there's a couple of things that we're realizing. One is that, you know, this idea of of what used to be called business as usual, and I've never really liked that that phrase. But but you know, I think that our ideas of what that likely trajectory looks like have have changed and and changed. You know, at least in some respects, in a good way. Right? We don't really think that these super high emission scenarios are are all that likely. They're certainly possible, but they're maybe not our expectation of what we think is going to happen. 
And that probably, I think what we expect is going to happen now is more likely to be something with some degree of mitigation and, and possibly, you know, very large amount of mitigation. Um, and and I think that the key thing that happens is you look out on these longer timescales, the range of possibilities just increases really dramatically, right? So after 2100, the world could be one in which we're still emitting huge amounts of carbon, right? It's certainly possible. Or it could be one in which we have have mitigated very strongly and are now getting to the point of removing CO2 from, from the atmosphere. I think the way I tend to look at it is that the biggest challenge we have for the first part, the first half of this century is how do we reduce our CO2 emissions and get them you know, as close to zero as possible? And the challenge for the second half of the century is how do we remove CO2 from the atmosphere at scale and start to restore the climate system um, to some semblance of what it had been like before from the from wherever we are uh, at the point where we're able to, to reach net zero. And so I think what that means then is that the, the range of, of possibilities after 2100 is is much broader than the range of possibilities for the for the near future. Right? We we kind of know what's likely to happen to the climate system over the next couple of decades because we just have so much inertia that the range of possibilities is is sort of somewhere you know a bit above to one and a half degrees C to somewhere you know around or or maybe just below one and a half degrees C. But the farther out we go, the the more that plume of uncertainty extends. And after twenty one hundred, I think you know you really have to consider the range from very high emissions that have continued unabated and a lot of climate system feedbacks, carbon cycle feedbacks from things like thawing permafrost and massive changes to ecosystems everywhere to um, scenarios where we're now removing large amounts of CO2 from the atmosphere. Um, and the climate system is just responding to those negative emissions. Um, and so I think it's important for us to be able to to better understand that that what that full range of scenarios um, after 2100 might look like, because all of them are you know plausible to some degree or another. We want to know what what the world is going to look like in in all these different scenarios, so that we can you know try to sort of aim ourselves and guide ourselves towards towards the future that we want to have and we want our kids and their and their kids to have. Right. And you were just talking about taking carbon out of the atmosphere. And there's a lot of talk today about offsetting emissions, whether it's individual offsets or corporations and businesses offsetting. You've expressed opinions before showing that this isn't enough. Can you talk us through why that is? Sure. Well, right now, you know, a lot of the the offs, offsetting that exists is, is doing things like planting trees. And, and trees are great. Um, you know, I love trees, but trees don't live forever. And and because trees don't live forever, they, the carbon that they pull out of the atmosphere doesn't uh, it doesn't stay out of the atmosphere forever. Um, and so, you know, in terms of negative emissions, there are a, a bunch of uh, of things you need to consider. One is how long is the carbon that you've removed from the atmosphere going to stay out of the atmosphere before um, before it, it, it is released? And so, um, you know, we do we not really have permanent uh, carbon removal technologies at, at any scale at all yet. The key feature of climate change is that we've taken carbon out of the sort of geologic reservoir of coal or oil or natural gas, um, where it's been passive for you know millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of years, 
and injected straight into the atmosphere, where it then cycles between the atmosphere, ocean, and land ecosystems. And those cycle, you know, much faster. And so, so carbon that's been removed and, and but is still within that atmosphere, ocean, land ecosystem cycling is, you know, is still carbon that's cycling. So in order to have a permanent offset, you need to take that carbon out of those three, you know, three reservoirs and put it back into these million-year timescale geological reservoirs. And we just don't really, that hasn't been done at any scale yet. Um, and so we need to figure out how to do that first, you know, first and foremost is how do we, how do we take carbon that's not just putting it in trees that last 50 years, but but putting it in uh, geologic reservoirs that, that are that are that are permanent. That, you know, until we can talk about that, we're not really talking about solving the problem in, in any way. So that's kind of uh, issue number one. Issue number two is how do you think about CO2 removal? Is it being done uh, in order to offset positive emissions? You know, to as part of net zero. Um, or you know, or in pursuit of net zero, is it, or is it being done in pursuit of something like a net negative emissions? And I think there's a, a lot of people working on that question right now. Of how do you think about negative emissions? Do you think about it as part of a balance of against positive emissions? Right now, there's a lot of pushback against negative emissions because they, you know, they create this moral hazard of saying, well, if we just you know, invest enough in negative emissions, then we can keep burning you know, oil and natural gas and coal and, and everything will be fine. And obviously that's not really the case, particularly because A, our, the negative emissions we do have aren't the same as positive emissions. You're balancing you know, a positive emission that's a permanent addition of carbon to the Earth system with a something that is not a permanent, addition, a permanent subtraction of carbon. So first of all, the ledger doesn't even work out. Uh, and secondly, there are real questions about the um, the total, you know, scale of, of possible negative emissions in terms of w what is feasible overall time. And and right now, you know, if, if our total carbon budget for keeping global warming below one and a half degrees C or below two degrees C is, um, you know, there's a fixed amount of carbon that we can emit into the atmosphere over all time because warming is proportional to emissions. If we we can't because the the negative emissions part of that is is going to be at least somewhat limited by what are the geologic reservoirs. Assuming we're able to figure out how to do this at all, if we're able to figure out how to permanently remove carbon from the atmosphere and put it in geologic reservoirs, we won't have an infinite capacity of those geologic reservoirs to put it into, and so we're not going to be able to to balance this out, you know, permanently and forever. We keep positive emitting and also keep negative emitting. That's just that's not really plausible and, and so we need to think about you know even even after we're able to if we're able to remove carbon from the atmosphere put in geologic reservoirs then we still need to reduce our emissions just because we won't we'll be filling up a limited capacity of, of places where we can put that carbon uh, but this is all getting you know getting really far ahead of ourselves because right now we don't have these technologies at any scale that's meaningful at all and so you know the one thing we do know how to do is reduce our emissions and so the range of possible net zero scenarios ranges from some amount of positive emissions offset by some amount of negative emissions to, you know, very tiny amounts of positive emissions offset by very tiny amounts of negative emissions. And the more we can push it towards tiny amounts of positive emissions offset by tiny amounts of negative emissions, the more we're talking about uh, a net zero that we actually know how to do versus these, these net zeros that involve lots of negative emissions that we just simply don't know how to do right now and probably won't know how to do for decades. So a few things, possibility of nuclear as an interim helping us keep within a reasonable temperature and sustainable biofuels. 
nuclear is is expensive. And I think that the key thing right now is that the cheapest source of energy that we have by far right now is solar. And that's, you know, hasn't always been the case. And so it's a wonderful opportunity that we can just build out. The downside, of course, is intermittency, but that changes the problem. It changes the problem from one of production to one of storage. And so it changes the problem that we need to solve from how do we generate electricity to how do we generate electricity and store it for when we need to use it. I think there will always be some need for other types of energy as well that are not intermittent. And nuclear is certainly a, a powerful one of those. The other nature of the change of the problem is how do we store energy in such a way that it can be deployed, you know, deployed for things like mobile applications, cars, other forms of transport, and you know, possibly sustainable biofuels is going to be one way of doing that. Well, in the Pacific Ocean, they're building these seek health elevators as an alternative biofuel because it doesn't have to be grown on land. And it's interesting. I don't know if it causes problems, if it has to take up too much room in the ocean, but I found it compelling marine biomass. Absolutely. I think one of the key questions we have about all biofuels or equivalently negative emissions technologies is what are the trade-offs? What are the opportunity costs? You know, certainly on land, biofuel that's grown on the same land that crops would be grown on, you're creating a trade-off for crops, which impacts prices, impacts people's ability to feed their kids. There are a lot of these trade-offs. And, and those get into the negative emissions question as well, because, you know, probably the one type of negative emissions technology that seems the, the most plausible at scale is one where we you use biomass alongside carbon capture and sequestration to basically use plants to take the carbon out of the atmosphere, but then you know, effectively burn those plant tissues, take the carbon from that and inject it into, into the geologic reservoirs. And again, that creates all these issues of side effects in terms of you know, loss of cropland. If you're using biofuels grown on croplands, loss of natural or forested ecosystems, if you're talking about plantation forestry being part of this biomass energy with carbon capture and sequestration on the ocean. If seaweed is part of that, like you say, maybe it doesn't offset the croplands, but the ocean impacts are also real. I don't think we've massively affected marine ecosystems in in ways that I think are are maybe less evident to people than on land, but no less um, dire. And so it's important to understand what are the trade-offs what are the opportunity costs of any of these different things, whether it's biofuels or negative emissions technologies that, that involve biofuels? These are all really important things to, that we need to figure out at the global scale. Because if you think about the, the size of the global fossil fuel industry, it's massive. And in order to get to net zero, we need to either stop emitting fossil fuels completely or very sharply reduce emitting uh, fossil fuels and balance that with an equivalent amount of negative emissions. In both cases, we're talking about a really different energy infrastructure at this massive scale that any any of the decisions we, we make are going to have enormous side effects, opportunity costs. And I think a lot of people are um, you know, really starting to, to seriously ask these questions of what is the most plausible, least destructive way of doing that. My name is Evelyn Moll, and I'm a senior at Barnard College studying environment and sustainability. I was really energized by this conversation with Dr. Charles Coven and his discussion of the IPCC report. The IPCC report is an excellent report in the context of the environmental sphere. 
because it brings together top experts in the climate field from many different countries and areas of expertise. The IPCC, which stands for Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, is formed by the UN in order to create a basic scientific understanding for policymakers and people to then make informed decisions and create policies and agreements based on the science. As Dr. Coven was saying, especially for Working Group 1, it is just the scientific facts, without politics, which is what makes it so reliable. On the note of science without politics, however, I was very interested in hearing what Dr. Coven had to say about the role of scientists in the public sphere. That is, of doing the science, of listening to the public and policymakers, and of communicating with the public. Because of the urgency, Earth and climate scientists are engaging with the public more than has ever been done in the past. This makes the problem feel very real as scientists are taking on roles that they haven't traditionally. It speaks to the inadequacy of the action being taken when scientists have to take on roles that they didn't previously, but it also helps both the problem and the solutions feel more accessible. Accessibility is an issue in helping people engage with the crisis. The science can be complex and difficult for people to fully grasp. And similarly, the solutions may feel inaccessible as well. But the people who understand the problem the most also understand the solutions the most. And again, by communicating and listening to the general public and policymakers directly, whether it be at a conference, on social media, or on a podcast such as this one, scientists can communicate the solutions. For example, Dr. Coven emphasized the reduction of emissions several times in this podcast and spoke of the different ways this can be achieved and the different trade-offs needed to reduce emissions in a way that is effective and feasible. I was hopeful to hear how Dr. Coven was talking about the fact that we can actually make the changes we need. He was saying it's the worst of times, but also the best of times. Hope is always refreshing and welcome in the environmental sphere especially when paired with action. As Dr. Coven was saying, it's simply about the will to change, especially politically. He spoke about the fact that all the innovations are out there and continue to be improved. We just need to implement them on a large level and invest in those renewable technologies and move away from the fossil fuels. Sometimes people argue that technology will save us. We've heard about huge mirrors reflecting sunlight to cool the planet the use of aerosols to cool the planet, and more. The narrative is that someone will invent something that will save us. But someone already has, with technologies such as solar or wind power, or the many smaller innovations. It's just not the quick fix that people and politicians envisioned. It does involve the need for transformative change in our lives. And not to mention, the Earth and climate systems are so complex. Dr. Coven was talking about all the different models from different labs around the world that were needed in order to produce the scientific data. He spoke a little bit about tipping points, which are widely unknown. We know so much about the planet, but there are systems that are intricately interconnected in ways we don't even understand. There is a narrative pushed around that we as humans dominate the world which is present in this idea that we will simply invent our way through geoengineering out of this crisis. But the scientists, like Dr. Coven, stress that reducing emissions is the sure way to go, haven't taken these small uncertainties into consideration. I really like how Dr. Coven speaks later in the podcast about holding multiple futures in our minds and how he uses that in his work. I find it really interesting 
how as a scientist, he works with the dire statistics every day, but also recognizes that it's out of his hands. Embracing uncertainty is, as we've been talking about, such an interesting and counterintuitive aspect for scientists. And I think it's really a testament to how much the scientific community has had to adapt to the lack of mitigation. Holding different futures is also a good philosophy to help us, as citizens, navigate the world in such a dire time. Now, let's get back to the podcast. And what's very interesting in the IPC report is that it really also addressed the social aspect. This hadn't been addressed before as much as that we can obviously individually make decisions to reduce our consumption and change our diets. And as we've seen during COVID, maybe work from home and all these things. And that was really important to address. On that point on nuclear, I live within a carbon budget that's very low. I found it's come down quite a bit here, but I always worried whether relying on nuclear would perhaps result in another big catastrophe. Right. Obviously, we can't predict the future. But I think countries that invested early in nuclear, like France, have much lower historical emissions than, than countries that didn't. And so I think you know, it, it made sense at the time when France did that. Whether or not it makes sense now for other countries to go that pathway, maybe not so much because there are better alternatives right now in terms of the declining cost of renewables. But which isn't to say that in California, where I live, we have some nuclear plants that are due to be retired. And unfortunately, if, if we do that, then that energy they produce is going to need to be replaced. And so there's a question, what's the right thing to do? Do we keep those nuclear plants open for some period of time longer uh, or, or not? And that's well outside my expertise. But, you know, it's a really important question to ask. In California or in the United States, what is the percentage now of our energy that comes from renewables? I know it's increasing really rapidly. And, and at least in California, we have a pretty low carbon intensity of our emissions. I don't know what the percentage is right now, partially because it's such a moving target. <laughs> yes. I, I don't know if it was global. I said something like 10%, but that must perhaps be global. I just try to imagine as we aim for net zero. Yeah, for sure. We've got a very long way to go. Like I said, this is the best of times and the worst of times. It's the worst of times because we know we have a really long way to go, but it's the best of times because we're starting to see these curves bend. You know, it's we're at the part where the adoption of these things is, you know, it's exponential sort of shape right now. And and that's great. And the longer we can keep it, you know, the exponential and keep it growing really fast year over year, the better. And so you were just talking about individuals and governments. So I'm wondering about the IPCC report. How do you choose which data to put in and what audience do you have in mind? Because I know the IPCC report is also adapted for policymakers as well. So when you're writing that general report, who is it for really? When you say what data do we put in, I guess, what, what do you mean by that? I mean, you do a lot of different research and you have a lot of different data. Do you choose which data to put in or to submit based on urgency based on what you think could be most important for policymakers to know, for example, or what you think would be most important for the public to know to inform their own choices? I can speak to the parts of the IPCC that I wrote on, which is really the use of climate models, and in particular climate models that include a carbon cycle component of them in order to understand what the relationship is between CO2 emissions and climate change. So, and the reason why you have a climate model that includes a carbon cycle to get at that is because up until recently, the way people use climate models was to say, well, if, you know, if the CO2 concentrations follow a certain trajectory, then you can kind of use those CO2 concentrations, put those into a climate model and say, what is the effect on the climate system? If you look at that, 
But because the CO2 concentration, the linkage between CO2 concentration and emissions isn't, it's not a one-to-one -one linkage. There are a lot of these feedback loops between, say, warming of climate affecting ecosystems, as well as the response of plants to CO2 in the atmosphere that lead to these feedbacks between what we emit into the atmosphere and the concentration in the atmosphere. And so what's needed to talk about the relationship between emissions rather than, than CO2 concentrations, climate is these climate models include interactive carbon cycle component. I mean, we call those earth system models. And so there aren't a lot of these earth system models that include both the physical climate, the carbon cycle. And so basically use all of the models that include all, all of these processes, include both the physical climate and the carbon cycle. And the climate modeling community has, as a result of the IPCC and as a result of the sort of international co cooperation between scientists and between scientists and policymakers that is part of the IPCC process, have a fairly long history of, of these sort of coordinated uh, modeling experiments um, where basically all of the world climate modeling centers agree to try to do the same numerical experiments with their climate models in order to best answer these questions that policymakers are asking and that people are interested in. And so what we do is take all these climate models, run them through these, these same kind of emissions trajectories, identify these feedback factors, the strengths of the feedbacks, the sensitivity of the climate to, to emissions. And, and then at the same time, we try to ask questions of where there's a large uncertainty in the climate models, um, or a large range of predictions in the climate models, can we say anything about which we think might be more likely to occur based on observations, how well the models are able to reproduce observed changes that have happened, whether those are at the global scale, whether at the regional scale, et cetera. And so we try to basically take all of the data that we have and put it all in there. So we take basically all the climate models that exist and try to confront them with data of as many different types of data as possible in order to test the different aspects of the models. Because one of the, the real difficulties is that when you're talking about physical climate and the carbon cycle, there are a lot of processes. You've got cloud processes that govern the sensitivity of the physical climate system. You've got changes in the representation of plant leaves and how plant leaves respond to elevated CO2. You've got changes, differences in soil carbon and permafrost, all these aspects of your system. And, and ideally, what we want to do is test as many different aspects of the climate models as possible with as many different data sets as possible in order to say how well these climate models and the carbon cycle components actually represent the actual planet that we live on. Um, and so, yeah, we don't really select data. We, we try and throw as much data as we can at the problem um, because it's such a huge problem. There, and there's so many different ways in which a climate model could be right or wrong. There's so many different ways. And so we basically take as many different climate models as we can, as many different sources of data as we can, and then try and uh, coordinate them in terms of, so that we can understand these sensitivities as well as possible. And then based on that, it's more of a question of kind of how well can we distill this huge amounts of information with a lot of different dimensions to it into a relatively small number of digestible pieces of information that, that they're, they're actionable and that people know what to do with. And I think the remaining carbon budget is the purest distillation of all this stuff because it includes information about carbon cycle feedbacks, includes information about physical feedbacks, includes information about all these different interactions. And, and it's framed in a way that says, what can we actually do? And the remaining, the idea of the remaining carbon budget is 
it, it emerges out of a lot of really complex science. Right? We, we wouldn't be able to create a remaining carbon budget if there wasn't this very direct relationship between CO2 emissions and warming. And for a long time, we scientists didn't actually know about this, right? It was only as a result of these this coupling of the physical climate models and the carbon cycle that people actually realized that there's this very direct relationship between emissions and warming, that it's both linear, a ton of, of CO2 emissions now versus a ton of CO2 emissions at some point in the past or future. It has basically the same effect on the climate system, and it's path independent. It doesn't matter uh, really, the sequence, whether we make a lot now and, and less in the future or less now and more in the future, it's the, the, there's just this very direct relationship between emissions and warming. And, and that relationship, which is as simple as it could possibly be, emerges because of a lot of comp- really complex interactions and feedbacks that tend to just cancel each other out. You know, you've got aspects of a climate system that become more sensitive with more emissions and aspects of the climate system that become less sensitive with more emissions. And those two things tend to cancel each other out and lead to this very simple relationship. And so that very simple relationship is itself an outcome of these models, and it is just the result of these climate models. And so w- what we can do is take this very complex information, distill it down into this very simple relationship, and use that to say, th- this is the task that's ahead of us. This is what we need to do. If our goal is to keep the warming below X or Y degrees of Celsius, then this is how we get there. This is the amount of carbon that we can burn between now and forever. This is the budget for our generation, for future generations. And so that that becomes a very, very simple relationship. And then you can say at one and a half degrees warming, the, we expect the impacts on humans, on ecosystems to be this. At 1.8 degrees, we expect it to be this. At two degrees, we expect it to be this, et cetera. And so those two aspects of saying the relationship between emissions and temperature is this, and the relationship between temperature and impacts is that. And those are the two key questions that a lot of the IPCC report is really framed around. The, both very simple and very important. But the simplicity is built on a lot of complexity as well. And in terms of the the relationship between temperature and impacts, and particularly in uh, soil climate and permafrost, are there some other areas, if I understand it, that we have to also look at in terms of emerging diseases or yeah, that's a really good question. I don't know a lot about that. There, the, the, this idea of diseases being frozen in permafrost is one that, that comes up a lot. And um, I, I don't know how much evidence there is for it or not. The, the way I think about it is that humans are putting an enormous amount of pressure on all the ecosystems everywhere. Uh, and and the more pressure we put on ecosystems, the more uh, chances there are to be these, these very unlikely, but nonetheless, they happen, these, these kind of spillover events. And obviously right now, after two years or two and a half years or however long it's been, seems like 25 years of COVID, it's something we're all particularly attuned to. And, and I think it's, you know, I guess that I, the way I see it is that speaks to where are our limitations in what we can really say. I don't think we can really say a lot about that. I don't think we can exclude the possibility that things like permafrost or changing animal migration patterns as a result of changing ecosystem in response to climate change. We, I don't, we certainly can't rule out the possibility that this is going to lead to increased spread of diseases. Yeah, there, there are a lot of these kinds of impacts that we can imagine, but we really can't quantify. And as you think back why you decided to go on this path to helping preserve our planet and just learn about it and our ecosystems, just take us back to where this curiosity began. 
Yeah, I guess I've been interested in these kinds of relationships between ecosystems and the physical climate for, yeah, on some level, it's probably as long as I can remember. I majored in geology as an undergrad, and I was really interested in the physical earth system at that point. And when I wanted to go to grad school, I knew that I wanted to both focus on the climate problem, as well as on the relationship between the kind of physical climate system and more the ecological parts of the climate system. And so I've basically been doing that to, in one way or another ever since I started in grad school a little more than 20 years now. And, and I've worked on a number of different topics. When I was a grad student, I worked on, on dust and the emissions of mineral dust from the atmospheres. Uh, from, from the deserts to the atmosphere, because dust is both as an aerosol that affects the climate system by absorbing and reflecting light, but also as a way of transporting nutrients to the ocean from one ecosystem to the next. There's a lot of evidence that both marine product productivity is sustained by iron inputs from dust that comes from deserts, as well as tropical forest productivity is sustained by phosphorus inputs from dust. And so that was sort of the first of these large-scale problems that, that I tried to work on. That then led me to looking at some of these aerosol dynamics, led me to think about secondary organic aerosols and the interaction between chemical emissions from plants and uh, pollutants and how those affect the climate system. And then I sort of started to focus more and more on the carbon cycle. When I first was really working on the carbon cycle, one of the key questions that, that hadn't been looked at really at all in any of the first generation of these coupled climate and ecosystem models was permafrost. And we know that the single largest pool of climate-sensitive carbon on land are these deep permafrost soils. And those were just not part of the first generation of coupled climate and carbon cycle models. And so that was something that I worked on for a number of years and still work on, is trying to understand how can we represent the permafrost carbon pool and the feedbacks, climate feedbacks from permafrost. More recently, I've been also focusing more on, on understanding vegetation dynamics, how plants respond to climate change, and how that, that sort of governs the structure of ecosystems and the response to climate change, and then and all, how all these different parts interact. So yeah, so over my career, I've worked on a, a bunch of these different problems. And on one hand, level, they're incredibly interesting science-wise. I'm, I'm drawn to these problems where all, all these kind of messy problems where these things that you might not think of being related turn out to, to all interact in, in weird ways. And they end up being really important. Right? They, they, these are the kinds of, of problems that end up governing things like these, these feedback loops between the different parts of the Earth system. And so they have a real importance to, to this, this critical question of, of climate change. That's sort of my pathway in a nutshell. I, I never really seem to know what I'm gonna be doing in, in a few years, but I've been lucky enough to really work, be able to work on a lot of really interesting questions. Oh, you definitely have. And as you've shared it's this perspective as a scientist, but as a citizen of the world, as you think about nature and its beauty and wonder, could you share like some memories of that? And as you think about the future and the kind of world that we're leaving the next generation, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Yeah, I, I draw a ton of inspiration from being able to be outside, being able to go on hikes, go on bike rides, paddling around in Berkeley, California, right near the San Francisco Bay. So we have all this great, great opportunities to be able to look at marine life, look at life on land. And I really draw a lot of inspiration from that. I guess looking into the future, as a scientist, what I've learned how to do is hold multiple futures in my head at the same time, because we just don't know. We don't know what the future holds. And so in terms of people, kids now, the we don't know. We need to fight for the futures that we want and against the futures that we don't want. 
And part of that is identifying what are the pathways to the future that we want look like? And what are the pathways to the futures that we don't want to look like? And then what do we need to do to make sure that we're on the pathways to the future that we want? Because we don't know what the future holds and, and it's up to us to figure it out and to choose the pathways that we want. So I think it's, like I said, it's the best of times, it's the worst of times. It's the best of times because there there is this movement now of people who are really asking these tough questions, looking for these change on a deep systematic level. That's all I can really say is that it's up to it's up to us. It's up to us to fight and advocate for what is the future that we want and what does that look like and how do we get there? Exactly. How do we get there? And thank you for illuminating those pathways, Dr. Charlie Coven, for sharing your visions of possible futures, your research and helping us understand our earth systems and where we are in climate, providing scientific knowledge so that we might meet our goals and avoid the worst of climate change impacts. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast. Thank you so much, Mia. It's really been a pleasure. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Evelyn Moll with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this podcast was Evelyn Moll. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hegenbarth. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.